District Court, 4th Judicial District, State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, count one. Court file number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021 at 1.44 p.m. Signed, juror four person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count two, third degree murder perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021 at 1.45 p.m. It was actually all three, second degree murder, third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. Is this a shock? Is this a surprise? This isn't a question of whether or not you thought he was guilty. This is a question of whether or not you thought a case could be made, not just for one, but for all three, including a very tough uh, requisite there, which is second-degree murder. Tony Katz, 93 WIBC, good morning. Let me bring in William Jacobson of LegalInsurrection.com, Cornell Law Professor. He's going to be doing post-trial analysis over at LegalInsurrection.com this evening at 8 p.m. You can be a part of it, LegalInsurrection.com. We've spoken about this, sir. We've spoken about this case. Talk to me about what you think of this uh, decision, guilty on all three counts. What was the jury looking at in your eyes? Well, of course, it's hard to know. I think the quick verdict uh, seems to indicate that there really wasn't any doubt in their mind going into deliberations. I think the you know a combination of circumstances, uh, I think people have to distinguish two things here. One, substantively, there was evidence of a crime here. There was, I believe there was also reasonable doubt as to what Chauvin did actually cause the death. But I can't say there was no evidence to support a conviction. Uh, But in this political atmosphere, with uh, every single juror knowing that their life was would be over if they voted not to convict, that they would be doxxed, they would be harassed, they would be attacked with a congresswoman out there threatening additional confrontation with, you know, everything going on, protesters on the streets. I think there was a real question here whether a trial in Minneapolis, regardless of the evidence, could have resulted in a not guilty. But that said, there was certainly evidence of a crime, I think, you know, and uh, I was surprised substantively that they convicted on everything. But, you know, just a couple of days before, you had a congresswoman on TV, Maxine Waters, saying, if they don't convict of murder, we're going to get you know, more confrontational. So I'm not really sure what was going on in the jury's mind, except that, you know, there was evidence to convict. I don't think it was second degree murder under Minnesota law uh, or even third degree uh, murder under Minnesota law, uh, because, you know, what he did was not an inherently dangerous act. Uh, I think there was plenty of testimony, even from prosecution witnesses, that keeping someone in the prone position and applying weight to them is actually uh, something taught to Minneapolis police. Uh, I think the argument was he went on too long. Now, I want to make sure that everybody is is on the same page. You are not having a conversation of whether or not you agree with officer, former officer Chauvin. You're taking a look at the argument that was made. Your team has been covering this every single day 
over at LegalInstruction.com. And based on the presentation and your understanding of the law, you don't think second degree or third degree applies, and you're engaging with us in some of the things that you heard. Why, in your view, is second degree manslaughter clearly a proper uh, guilty finding? Because that's essentially a negligence standard. It's a standard that, you know, um, I think you could make a good argument, and it wouldn't have shocked me if the jury went along with this, that while it might have been proper to arrest him and it might have been proper to take him to the ground, which even prosecution witnesses said is a technique taught, and while it may have even been proper to put him prone on the ground, which, again, prosecution use of force police witnesses said was proper, it went on too long. And I think that, you know, fairly looking at it, if at some point in that nine minutes, halfway into it, when it was clear this person was either completely non-responsive or becoming non-responsive, they had rendered some sort of medical care or done something to ease the situation, I think it might have been a different result. But I think the re- that, that it was negligent, having put him properly in the prone position, it was negligent to keep him there even after he visibly stopped breathing. And, and kind of my reaction that I wrote about immediately after the uh, close of the evidence but before the closing arguments was I think that's a problem. I think that you know when somebody is handcuffed on the ground, no longer resisting, um, you know, and has visibly stopped breathing, why do you keep weight on him for another two minutes? So I think that was always going to be a problem. But that's not, you know, second degree murder and it's not third degree murder. It's manslaughter. Uh, And so that's why I think that if that had been the result, while I do think there was reasonable doubt as to cause of death and things like that, I, I think that would have been understandable. But the fact that the jury came back so quickly with, you know, um, you know, second degree murder, basically convicted of everything tells me that they didn't really have an open mind on these things. Let us get into that idea right now. Talking to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, LegalInsurrection.com is the site. You should check it out for yourself. We spoke about what Representative Maxine Waters said, that we're going to continue in the streets, and I want guilty, 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 and only of murder. We're going to get more confrontational. Um, you you saw the crowds that built. You know that the jury was going home in the evening only with the instructions of don't watch the news. So there's a question of what they saw and what was uh, prejudicial. This is a conversation not even just about this case, but about the legal system in general. Is it possible that someone like Judge Cahill, who was presiding over this case, or is it possible that on appeal, as we heard Judge Cahill say, the defense now has a great reason to get this thing overturned uh, on appeal. Will the quick verdict, 10 hours of deliberation, will that play into this? And will we see any level of appeal? Because there's back and forth on this, including people like uh, the, the TV judge and, and TV host uh, Janine Pirro saying, no, this is going to survive appeal. What do you say? Well, I think there's a real question. I mean, this Judge Cahill, I thought, within the confines of the courtroom, seemed to be a reasonable judge who tried to do his best, but he made one error which tainted the entirety of the case 
which was not two errors. One is not moving it out of Minneapolis. I mean, for goodness sake, the jurors had to arrive every day to a heavily fortified public uh, building uh, with fencing, National Guard, uh, heavy police presence. They knew what was going to happen. So not moving it out of Minneapolis, not changing the venue was mistake number one which probably made a fair trial impossible. And mistake number two was not sequestering the jury and not really protecting their identity because during jury selection, while they didn't show the faces of the jurors, they played the voices, which means all their coworkers, all their family members, all their neighbors were going to know who they were. So you went into a trial with threats of violence, Uh, a history of violence in Minneapolis. The city, significant neighborhoods were completely burned down and gutted. Um, People threatening violence if there wasn't uh, the result they wanted in the case. And the jurors had really no anonymity. I think that it was guaranteed that if there was a not guilty verdict, by the time we're speaking now, these names would be out there, reporters would be at their front doors, and protesters would be leaving you know, severed pig's head on their door like they did to the witness, um, the the defense witness. They did that to the house he used to live in, thinking he still lived there um, in California. So I think that, you know, this entire case was tainted. That's not to say there wasn't evidence for a conviction, but the entire process had a taint to it that I think you couldn't get rid of. Now, what that means on appeal, I think, you know, one of the points I've made, heard a number of people make is that it's not clear that the taint was sufficiently documented. I mean, do we know whether any of the jurors actually heard what Maxine Waters said? So, you know, I I think that's going to depend how an appeals court is going to view it, uh, that there has to be evidence that the jury actually was tainted, not that there was a political atmosphere which was hostile to a particular verdict. But, you know, and I, I think that's something where perhaps the defense, you know, lawyer Uh, you know, didn't do a great job in preserving that record and that evidence for an appellate court. He certainly raised the objection, but he should have asked for each juror to be spoken to privately by the judge. I mean, there should have been some record that these jurors actually heard it. And we will Uh, see whether or not what we'll see what happens on appeal. William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, LegalInsurrection.com, post-trial analysis tonight at 8 p.m. over at LegalInsurrection.com.